1: And here's your need to know. American aid. The OECD says Biden's bill will improve the global economic recovery. Genocide judgment. A devastating new report on China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. Cyber attack spread. Warnings that the Microsoft email hack is escalating. And... picture worth a thousand words we speak to the CEO behind this new technology it's Tuesday let's make a move Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us this Tuesday. Another day of royal rifts, market shifts and global economic lifts. That's the good news, at least according to the OECD this morning. They argue that President Biden's $1.9 trillion emergency aid plan will not only boost U.S. economic growth, but it'll also lift global economic growth, too, by a full percentage point this year. We've got all the details On that report coming up, it's a recovery story that's playing out in pretty volatile fashion in both the stock and bond markets around the world. Stocks continue to take their lead from bond markets. If we talk about here in the United States, when rates hold steady, stocks rise. And that's what we're seeing pre-market once again today. As you can see, the U.S. 10-year yield back. around that 1.5 percentage point mark but there's a bigger story here on wall street for the year the blue chip down now up four percent year to date while the nasdaq is down some two percent energy stocks and financials are outperforming while pandemic winners like apple amazon and chipmaker nvidia are all deep in correction territory as you can see in front of you there it's a similar story in china too the shanghai composite closed down around some two percent In today's session, despite state-backed funds coming in to buy stocks to stabilize things, the big cap CSI index now down 14%. In fact, from its most recent high, investors are worried that the government will ease back on some of the support measures they've provided, that they'll step in perhaps to contain some of the froth in financial asset prices. And it's a concern, I think, fueled too by China's surprisingly conservative growth target announcement last week. Just to be clear, the OECD far more optimistic on China. Than the Chinese themselves. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Wow, Christine, I'm stumbling a little bit this morning. I will hand it over to you. Thank you, America, I think is the news of the day. According to this OECD report, it will lift many boats and not just the US boat.
2: And certainly $1.9 trillion is so much money. It's more than double the Obama-era rescue, not counting all the stimulus already in the pipeline, or rescue, really, in the pipeline from last year that Congress uh, and the Fed were pumping out to try to save the American economy and hence the global economy uh, from ruin because of the of the coronavirus here. In terms of the market, with apologies to Bruce Springsteen, I mean, the bond market is boss, right? Every day when we see bond yields moving, we see the stock market uh, take its tone in this rotation when yields rise out of those big tech high flyers of last year and into the blue chips. It struck me that yesterday you had the Dow intraday hit a record high on the same day you had the Nasdaq actually touch and close close in official correction territory. To me, that really crystallizes this rotation out of last year's winners and into the areas of the economy that are expected to benefit from these bullish uh, forecasts. With those bullish forecasts of the economy, of course, in the U.S. in particular come risks. Uh, But to date, you're still hearing from most economists the risk of doing too much in the economy still outweighs, uh, too little in the economy, rather, still outweighs doing too much, Julia. Yeah, and I get your point. And your point about the markets as well. I was looking at
1: some of the performances mid-Feb to the current period in U.S. and European energy up 20% and 11% respectively. For U.S. and EU banks up 12% and up near 14%. There is a real recovery rotation taking place in this markets, which is great to see, quite frankly, if it can be sustained. And if this is the cost of it, it's a whopping great cost. But to your point, and I think we agree, doing too little here is still the bigger risk.
2: Yeah, and when I look within you know, the, the, the contours of this $1.9 trillion package, and to be fair, it goes back to the House today, still has to be sort of tweaked and signed by the House of Representatives, then it goes to the president's desk for a signature, and then assuming it is signed, which we all think it will be, there are all kinds of mechanics to work out about how to change the child checks. Child tax credit so that people get money every month. Uh, how do you make sure the first $10,200 in unemployment benefits are actually tax-free? There's a lot of uh, guts that have to be worked out, but I see a big, sprawling, historic Progressive agenda for the year that is going to be uh, that's going to be embarked on here. Everything from food aid to housing aid to a rescue of public pensions to transportation projects. There's so much in here. We'll be measuring the consequences intended and unintended. I think for years to come. Absolutely. And if we're talking about 5.6 percent growth for the globe, when the American consumer
1: spends. Any nation that imports to the United States benefits, and a global lift here incredibly welcome too. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Nice to see you. All right, let's move on. China quote bears responsibility for the alleged genocide of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. That's according to an independent report by a Washington think tank. The report accuses China of violating the United Nations Genocide Convention. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong with all the details. Ivan. We'll talk about the implications for the United Nations as a result of this report, because, of course, China, a permanent member, which has a huge importance. But just talk us through further details of this report. Pretty damning.
3: It is. And it's important to note that the United Nations Genocide Convention defines genocide as not purely like what the Nazis did in World War II, putting people in gas chambers, or the Rwandan genocide carried out with machetes, that other definitions of genocide include forcibly transferring children of what, of a targeted group or imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. What this report by the Washington, D.C.-based think tank New Line's Institute for Strategy and Policy concludes is that, uh, based on the evidence out there... A lot of it, including statements and reports issued by the Chinese government itself, its panel of experts and lawyers and academics have come to the conclusion that China has matched the Chinese government with its policies in Xinjiang have matched the five definitions of genocide laid out by the UN convention. It specifically makes these allegations that these Chinese state policies uh, contribute to that accusation. The government mandated homestays, which is a much trumpeted Chinese government policy where more than a million communist party members are put into the homes without any choice of the matter, into the homes of ethnic the Uyghurs and other minorities in Xinjiang. Mass internment, the U.S. State Department alleging up to 2 million members of the minorities in Xinjiang rounded up and put into internment camps, mass birth prevention policy, forcible transfer of Uyghur children to state-run facilities, eradication of Uyghur identity, selective targeting of intellectuals and community leaders. Now, we've been hearing about these accusations from uh, people from inside Xinjiang who've escaped from relatives on the outside. The Chinese government has routinely denied and rejected any allegation whatsoever of human rights abuses in Xinjiang. And they've also angrily denounced any suggestion that genocide has been committed there. Listen to the foreign minister of China a few days ago. The claim that there is genocide in Xinjiang could not be more preposterous. It is just a rumor fabricated with ulterior motives and a thorough lie. Over the past four decades and more, the Uyghur population in Xinjiang has more than doubled from 5.5 million
0: to over 12 million.
3: Yes, the Uyghur and Xinjiang population grew over the last 40 plus years, as did the rest of China. But look at these statistics from the last decade published by the Chinese government and you will see a startling decrease in the years 2017 to 2019 of the birth rate in Xinjiang, dropping by almost a half over the course of two years. And in our reporting on this, the Xinjiang government told us that this was partially a result of enhanced family planning policies, such as uh, the offer of uh, sterilization procedures and contraceptives implanted into people. The v- witnesses and the victims that we've interviewed have said that the sterilizations were forced on them. And these types of allegations have contributed to this report. Julia.
1: Yeah, Ivan, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for uh, that update there. All right, let's move on. Meanwhile, The Biden administration is warning that the China-linked Microsoft hack is an active threat, quote, and is setting up a task force to tackle it. Microsoft revealed last week that Hafnium, a hacking group thought to be state-backed, had accessed its email service. Alex Markart joins us now. Alex, the problem is, by raising the flag and saying, look, we have vulnerabilities here, it sent out a signal to other hackers, both domestic and international, to say, hey, we've got vulnerabilities. Why don't you have a go? And that, it seems is what's happened.
4: That's right, Julia. Uh, Microsoft has said that others are latching on to this attack that has been carried out by, uh, as you mentioned, a group that the that the company has called Hafnium, who are believed to be a Chinese government-backed hackers. Now, the warnings from the U.S. from the Biden administration are growing more and more urgent. And when you talk to cybersecurity experts, they say that the extent of this vulnerability cannot be overstated. Uh, we did hear from the main U.S. cyber agency last night. Uh, that agency is known known. known as CISA, and they tweeted a a rather uh, urgent warning. I want to read it. They wrote, CISA urges all organizations across all sectors to follow guidance to address the widespread domestic and international exploitation of Microsoft Exchange Server product Vulnerabilities. Now, the former head uh, of this agency, CISA, uh, he added on to this, saying uh, that this is a crazy huge hack, in his words, and that the sheer scale and speed of this one is terrifying. Uh, Now, as you mentioned, uh, Julia, other groups are believed to be uh, latching on and jumping on to these vulnerabilities. The White House has said uh, that this is an ongoing threat. Now, it's not believed that the U.S. federal government is directly affected in any huge way, uh, but certainly local and and state governments are vulnerable, uh, as are a number uh, of entities all around the country and all around the world. Uh, One official told us that there were an estimated 30,000 potential victims here in the United States and and a quarter million uh, around the world. We did hear from uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, who who singled out think tanks uh, and defense industrial entities. We also heard from the White House press secretary who who said that academia uh, was vulnerable as well. Now, we understand that uh, what's called a unified coordination group, UCG, is being formed uh, to deal with the fallout from uh, this hack uh, that includes various national security agencies, including that cyber agency, CISA, uh, and the FBI. The last time we saw a, a UCG being uh, being created and stood up by the government uh, was earlier this year uh, in, the, in the wake of the SolarWinds hack that is being blamed on Russia. So now, Julia, uh, the Biden administration, just a few weeks in office, is having to deal with these two monumental hacks, Uh, believed to have been carried out by China and Russia. Julia?
1: Yeah, monumental issues to be dealing with, all of these things that we've discussed this morning. Alex, great to have your insights. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Prince Charles appeared in public a short time ago for the first time since the explosive Harry and Meghan Oprah Winfrey interview. But he ducked a question from a journalist who was asking about it. Meanwhile, well, only more than half of people watching television across the UK when it was shown were tuned in to the interview. Max Foster joins us now from Windsor, England. Max, great to have you with us. Clearly huge, huge interest in the United Kingdom as well as across the pond here in the United States as well. Perhaps no surprise that Prince Charles decided not to respond to that journalist. It feels like deafening silence from Buckingham Palace, but not unusual to see them take their time and decide how to respond, if at all, to something like this.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, actually, this visit today was a response from the palace. You know, I've been speaking to people. Uh, I think the impression I'm getting really from Buckingham Palace is they don't want to be rushed into a formal response. But what you've got here is Prince Charles not clearing his diary, carrying on with the engagements that are in place there already. So he was there at a vaccination centre. And uh, naturally, one of the reporters threw a question at him about whether or not he'd seen the interview and he didn't respond to it. I think what they're doing here is keeping calm and carry on, Julia. I mean, you know the the term. They're carry- you know, this is a thousand-year-old castle. Their story is a lot longer than this one moment in Oprah's... Uh, interview history I think that's probably the view and they will respond I think they do think of course see the allegations here sitting in the interview as very serious but they don't really rushed into it they want to do it in their own time and I think this visit today was really uh, part of that narrative actually
1: just looking at Prince Charles there and actually I think he looks very tired um, incredibly stressful time for the for the royal family as well of course with Prince Philip still in in hospital how do they respond Max and how does this change the monarchy, if at all, in in your view, as someone with so much understanding and expertise of of how this family operates, how this institution
5: operates? Uh, Yeah, well, they're a brand, aren't they? And I think a brand has values. And um, some of the values that Megan particularly questioned here are, you know, integral, actually, to the brand. They have to be relevant to their entire uh, public Uh, And she talked about racism, so that alienates them from some elements of the public. And I think that, you know, when you talk about the mental health issues and how she wasn't cared for, she believes, and you've got a brand that often promotes mental health issues and diversity and the Commonwealth, uh, then she's undermining the brand. And they're the issues that I think the wider institution will be concerned about going forward. And then there's all these other layers of particular um, details which perhaps they're thinking about addressing as well you know some of the details about the, how they left and who was blame effectively uh, for that so I think there's a lot there for them to digest and on the Sussex side there's just Meghan and Harry they make all of their own decisions they're very firm leaders on this side you've got William Charles and the Queen and all the aides around them so it's much more complex and harder to come up with a response very quickly I think
1: yeah we'll continue to wait Max Foster great to have you with us thank you for that all right, it's to come. On First Move, the futuristic AI bringing history to life. We take a look at the technology offering fresh glimpses into the past and passports out of the pandemic. Israel's roadmap to leaving lockdown. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where US stocks are set to rally in early trade. Tech looks set for a rebound after falling into 10% correction territory yesterday. The Dow set to hit fresh records. Tesla, one of the big gainers, up 7% pre-market, on news that its China sales rose a strong 18% last month. Stocks are also higher after bond yields pulled back from one-year highs. As you can see, the hedge fund manager David Tepper saying yesterday that yields are set to stabilize, in his view, but challenges remain. The US is set to auction off some $120 billion worth of new debt this week. The fear is that investors will bulk just like they did when an auction went bad last month, sending rates soaring. So that's one to watch today. In the meantime, the global vaccine rollout continues to pick up pace. It's good news. Israel remains the front runner. Nearly 58% of people have had at least one dose. Next, the UAE with a rate of 35%. The UK, Chile, and Bahrain follow. The United States, meanwhile, in sixth place. Almost 18% of Americans have had at least one dose. But my next guest says that may not be enough to protect against a dangerous new wave of infections. Joining us now, Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, joins us now. Michael, fantastic to get you on the show. I want to start actually with the CDC guidelines that were released yesterday for individuals that have been vaccinated and There was a lot of pushback and criticism that they're being far too conservative in what vaccinated people are allowed to do. What's your sense?
6: Well, I, first of all, want to emphasize the fact that, remember, these guidelines are for people who have been vaccinated. We don't want people who have not been vaccinated to interpret that we're suggesting they can change Mm. uh, their means of protection. In terms of the uh, recommendations that CDC has made, first of all, they were very clear that these are interim, meaning that they expect to update these with some regularity as they get more information. Number two is I always uh, find it interesting when you have those from a more conservative approach believing that in fact that they should have opened up much, much more than they did. And those from a more uh, progressive side saying, oh, you've loosened up way too much. Uh, We're going to put people at risk of more disease. I kind of feel like the Goldilocks uh, recommendations are working, uh, that they're just about right. So clearly we all want who among us who have been vaccinated to uh, find that uh, we don't have to wear our masks necessarily in as many places that we can do uh, other things. And I think those will be coming in the days ahead. But I think right now the CDC struck a a really good middle position. I
1: mean, there's an international theme here, too, because around the world, many people are being vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine with the Moderna vaccine, too. So it's just interesting, I think, for everybody to hear what they're saying, what they're still advising, though. And there are many people that haven't seen their families, grandparents, parents for what more than a year. They're saying that they recommend against both domestic and international travel, even if you've been vaccinated. There will be people going, hang on a second. I've booked a holiday. I've booked a trip. I'm going to see my parents. Michael, is it reasonable to expect people still not to travel even when they've been vaccinated, particularly if they're going to visit people who've also been vaccinated? I think this is
6: a very legitimate point. And let me just remind everyone, however, though, in most places, very few people have been vaccinated yet. There are some selected countries that you noted, and I think those are important. But when you go into an area where you might see a substantial transmission of the virus, for example, right here in the United States right now, we are seeing a, a surge begin with this B B117 uh, variant, the one that came from the U.K. originally. And this one is, I can tell you, in our own state of Minnesota, spreading rapidly from uh, county to county here, and we're beginning to see that in the country. And so when we have people who have been recently vaccinated, we do believe that that should protect against those variants. And I think you're going to see over time, as more and more people get vaccinated, that in fact, these recommendations will relax even more saying that we now have enough people vaccinated that the likelihood of encountering the infection is much lower. So I, I understand the issue. I'm a grandfather. I wanna spend time with my five grandchildren, which I have just missed largely the last year of doing. And so I get that. And in this case, I can now uh, you know, consider that, but I think travel is one of the next areas you're gonna see CDC address. And I think that we will see more travel recom- or at least allowed uh, when you're vaccinated.
1: I will just make the point um, for the Brits that are watching that are probably hopping up and down on some of them will be on their sofas. It was a variant identified in the UK as opposed to originating in the UK, at least as far as we know at this stage. Um, Michael, can we look at the European example of how quickly those variants proliferated and became the majority in certain cases of, of the virus that was being identified and tested for. Can we look at what we saw in Europe and look at the United States now as we see those variants take hold in parts of the country and say there's a risk actually that what we've seen in Europe is coming to the United States? Because I know you gave a stern warning in recent days right. about the risks.
6: Well, the B one one seven variant that we're talking about here, when it did spread in the U.K., in, in any other number of uh, European countries, when it hit about 35 to 50 percent of all the viruses uh, found, there was a sudden surge in cases and that surge, which has been addressed in part by vaccine, but most specifically by lockdowns. Most people in uh, the Americas have no idea what the European and the people in the Middle East have gone through over the course of the past two months uh, in terms of major lockdowns. Just uh, this week, uh, England has opened up its schools again after having been closed since Christmas time. So that we have that very same problem ahead of us. I wish more people were vaccinated in the United States. Uh, We're we're making progress, but in the meantime, as B117 grows rapidly in terms of its presence here, we're going to see this surge of cases. We have seen a number of states where uh, in early January the B117 uh, variant made up only 1 to 2 percent of all the variants uh, found, and today it's in upwards of 40 to 50 percent. That's a bad sign. We are going to be going through, unfortunately, uh, in, in many ways, what the Europeans and Middle Eastern countries have had to experience.
1: Have enough people in terms of the elderly population, those most vulnerable nursing homes, been vaccinated in order to prevent the spike in hospitalizations and, and deaths potentially? Have enough people been vaccinated in the United States? Because I guess that's the hope. Even if we see cases rise, there's enough protection out there to prevent the ramp up in, in loss of life and hospitalizations following.
6: Yes. And that's a very important point. Uh, You know, we have vaccinated the 1.4 million residents of long term care facilities in this country, which is a very important uh, uh, group to vaccinate in terms of the likelihood of experiencing severe illness uh, or or death. Uh, At the same time, we still have upwards of almost 50 percent of those 65 years of age and older in this country who have not yet had a dose of vaccine. And so that is a group that still remains at very high risk for serious illness. One of the things also that the B117 variant has shown us is not only is it more transmissible, 40 to 50 percent more, but it's also causing more severe disease. So even in younger individuals who may not have been that ill in the past, needing hospitalization or having serious illness and even at the risk of dying we expect as was seen in europe to see a higher proportion of younger individuals who have not been vaccinated yet that will be experiencing this more severe illness
1: yeah no time to relax i think that's the message michael great to get your insights michael Osterholm, director of the center for infectious disease research and policy at the university of minnesota thank you sir all right the market opens next stay with us Welcome back to First Move, where we have a snapback rally in tech stocks after a 2.5% drop into correction territory yesterday. The Dow also at fresh records too. Good news for global investors today. Also from the OECD saying that new U.S. stimulus will boost global GDP by a full percentage point this year. I tell you what, markets and investors are in a much better place than they were this time last year when global stocks began plunging as the extent of the COVID crisis came into view. We were live at the New York Stock Exchange on March 9th, 2020. And I have to tell you, it was pretty ropey that day. Watch this. And the delay that we're seeing even. Yes. say this is expected the delay that we seem to be seeing here remember is because we will limit down there is the picture so we are now down more than 7 percent for the Nasdaq for a lot of investors they're going is that what's going to be needed in countries like the United States okay the reason why we just heard the bell is because now the S&P 500 is down 7 percent so that's kicked in a halt we will now be halted for 15 minutes yeah it's a sea of red the financial I'm pulling out Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, all down some 10 to 11 percent. Right now you can see the Dow off some 7.8 percent and we're holding for at least this moment at these levels.
5: The markets are in deep fear, panic mode. You know, it's a virus, it's oil and, and it's and it's panic
1: feels like 10 years ago. That wasn't the end of it. Stocks continue to plunge before bottoming out on March 20th. A V shaped stock recovery since, but far from a V shaped economic recovery. Joining us now is Savita Subramanian. She's the head of US equity and quantitative strategy and head of ESG research at Bank of America. Savita, fantastic to have you on the show. I I said it felt like 10 years ago. Wow. (laughs) Those were some interesting days. Interesting tests for financial markets, too. Absolutely. No, those were
7: some dark days. I mean, what's remarkable is that last year we ended the the, uh, the U.S. equity market at new highs, um, despite the fact that we were in the worst you know global shutdown we've ever seen. So I think it was a really unprecedented year for markets
1: and for the economy. Unprecedented levels of stimulus to follow as well, which is clearly made the difference for financial markets if uh, we separate out what's going on for the underlying economy here. Savita, you caught my attention around eight days ago because you put out an article, a report, saying that you were collating the average recommendations for equities and from sell-side analysts. And it was so incredibly bullish, it had a reverse effect in terms of A counter indicator, perhaps, for how stocks may perform. Just talk us through that report on what you were seeing. Yeah,
7: absolutely. So I think what's interesting, we've been tracking this indicator for years now, since the 1980s. And what we've found is that when Wall Street gets really, really bullish, that's about when you want to sell and then when wall street is really bearish and under the table and fearful of equities that's when you want to buy. And I think the idea here is it's a contrarian indicator as you point out. And it's really because when everybody is talking about what's going to go right for stocks, chances are all that great information is priced into the market and the market might be more likely to disappoint. And then vice versa when when folks are talking about how stocks are we're in a bear market, stocks are going to go down forever. That's about when you want to just sort of hold your breath and buy. Um, But right now, what's interesting is there are no bears out there. There are no bears on Wall Street. In fact, the average allocation for stocks is about 60%. This is the highest we've seen in many, many years. And this is the closest to a sell signal that we've seen in this indicator since 2007, which, as you remember, was the beginnings of another kind of a, a tough time for equities back in the the financial crisis. So I think what this indicator is telling us is that sentiment is bullish. Positioning is already in U.S. stocks, especially large cap tech growth stocks. And it's probably a better
1: time to lighten your exposure rather than extend that exposure from here. And that's what you're telling investors, because you are the ones that said a few weeks ago that the biggest reason to be bullish, uh, the reason to be bearish is that there's no reason to be bearish. Exactly. That's exactly right. Everyone is bullish. It's time
7: to be bearish. And I think, you know, the the economy and the stock market are two very different things. We are bullish on the economy. We think that, you know, to your point, stimulus is going to drive another four percentage points of GDP. We've got a great recovery in the economy, great recovery in corporate earnings. But the market kind of anticipated all of that already. And I think that the worrisome problem from here is that maybe the news flow is going to get more negative as the year progresses because you know we've we've kind of heard all the good stuff already
1: what about the connection or the correlation, as we call it, between what we're seeing in the bond markets and what we're seeing in the equity markets? Because we, I'm at the stage now where I look at where the bond market is and I can probably judge what the pre-market performances of stocks, if, if interest rates exactly. are higher, stocks will probably be lower and vice versa. How closely correlated yep. are those two things? And, and again, what are you telling investors about that?
7: Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated uh, issue. So, you know, rising rates alone aren't necessarily bad for stocks because what they signify is, you know, kind of growth and and, and an economic pickup. And and all of that is generally good for cyclicals and for certain parts of the market, like energy and financials. Um, And we've seen those areas do really well over the last few months. But I think that what rising rates also do is it provides income investors with an alternative to stocks. So, you know, one of our arguments for the last 10 years is is that the stock market looks great because it actually has that scarce resource of income. It's got dividend yields. And, you know, in many areas of the world, interest rates are below zero. So yield is really the desirable commodity. But now that you're starting to see yields rise in more traditional sources of income, I think the worry is that Income-oriented investors, and there are a lot of income-oriented investors that have been forced into U.S. stocks. Those investors might go back to their more traditional asset classes, and this is what we've seen over time: um, is that there are thresholds of interest rates at which income investors go back to bonds, and we're pretty close to those levels right now.
1: Lots to watch. Great to get your insights, Savita. Fantastic. To have Lots on to the watch. Show. Thank you, The Thank head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy at Bank of America. All right, coming up after the break, an AI innovation transforming old photographs into something very different. Take a look at this. You're seeing my grandmother's face move. It was based on a still photograph hanging on the wall of my parents' house. It's quite emotional seeing it. She, um, she reminds me of my sisters and my father, who I miss badly. Artificial intelligence generating new insights and nostalgia. The my heritage. CEO up next to talk us through. Welcome back to First Move. Before the break, you saw how artificial intelligence is generating great feelings of nostalgia, many other things too. Seeing animated faces of friends and family, past and present, can be quite an emotional experience. Well, the same can be said for historical figures brought back to life too. Just watch this. Thank you. Jaffet is founder and CEO of MyHeritage and joins us now. Wow, it gives me a frog in my throat, actually, watching those, even when it's not my own family. Just talk to me about the science behind this and the kind of reactions that you're getting from people using it. And great to have you on the show, by the way. I'm clearly very enthusiastic.
8: Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I want to give you a bit of context first. Mm. Uh, MyHeritage.com is a website and mobile application for family history allows people to trace their ancestors, build their family tree, and discover the unique stories of their family. And we've always looked for special ways to allow people to connect to their ancestors. And one of the best ways to do that is through photographs. We created amazing features using artificial intelligence to colorize black and white photos automatically and enhance focus of blurry photos. And now, by partnering with an Israeli startup called the DID, we took deepfake technology that they created and used it to build this new service on MyHeritage called Deep Nostalgia. It lets you upload any photo and animate the faces in it, basically converting the photo into a video and bringing the people in the photo back to life.
1: Have you done it with your own family and family members?
8: Yes, I've started with myself, but it's been very emotional for me to do this mm-hmm. with my late father and have a chance to see him smiling again back at me. And we've received uh, thousands of emotional responses from people all over the world who have done the same, who have uploaded a photo of something, someone very meaningful to them and had um, a wonderful experience uh, reconnecting with that person.
1: And just to be clear, because you mentioned the term deep fake, um, you decided that these are hard-coded animations, so you can't add speech to them because you, you didn't want to risk this technology being used, perhaps, to create fake videos.
8: That's correct. The way the technology works is very interesting. It is using artificial intelligence to recognize the facial features from a photograph. And then what we have done is we have filmed a set of drivers who are people who are doing a sequence of facial expressions. And when you upload your photo, we automatically select the best driver and we apply it so that we animate the person in your photo in exactly the same way. And exactly as you said, this is preventing any abuse because the drivers are silent. There is intentionally no speech and the movements are hard-coded. So you can't really take a person and have them say what you want or do what you want It's more an emotional experience for you to do with um, photos of your own family and you're not allowed to upload photos of a living person without their permission. Thanks to these protections, there has been no abuse. It's funny, we
1: were just showing videos of people's response to seeing family members and you see a mixture of sort of shock, joy, emotion people crying it is it's an incredibly emotional experience it's also a way and you sort of raise this with what you do at my my heritage it's a way of bringing people to the platform perhaps they go on to research their family history or they order a DNA test for example as well i read that you have 13 billion historical records in terms of data yes, that- this is astonishing just talk to me about protecting that data you're going to carry on there but just in light of the, all the conversations we're having about data privacy, about cybersecurity, that's a lot of information to protect.
8: Yes, actually, the 13 billion historical records on MyHeritage are mostly of deceased people. So the, the privacy protections are um, slightly um, less important. But we take the privacy of our users uh, very, very seriously and protect their data And we pledged that we don't own the information. It is only owned by the users, and we just host it for them. And um, privacy is extremely important to us.
1: Which makes sense. You recently decided to um, sell the company as opposed to go public. Just can you explain that decision to me as well? Because I I look at what you're offering and the incredible growth, and I, I know you've been profitable for a long time. What was the decision in terms of, Maintaining control of the company and deciding which way you go at this point in time.
8: So, as you said, we have been going on for many years, um, actually 17 and a half years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and doing very doing very well. Um, but I felt that it's time to reward the employees and also the longtime shareholders. But I wanted to pick a path that would not be the end of the road. I did not want to retire, but on the contrary, take this (laughs) company to new heights with our wonderful employees. So this path of partnering with Francisco Partners, which are a private equity firm, allows us to just keep everything as it is and keep going strong and aim for the next exit. And the the next one might be going public. Uh, We're not ruling anything out.
1: So what next? With the money that you raise, what next? Because you've clearly made a big impression bringing uh, pictures to life.
8: So um, we like to think of ourselves as very innovative. We <clears throat> founded the company on the principle of bringing genealogy back to life with innovative technology. So we keep looking for new and unique ways to allow people to connect to their family history. I would hope that people, uh, more people embrace genealogy It makes people feel closer to their family and to each other. And it's a very good thing that makes, I think, the world uh, a little better place.
1: Yeah, I agree. Look, there's my grandmother again. Just gives me a huge (laughs) frog in my throat. (laughs) Thank you for coming on and talking about um, what you're doing. Oh, I'm getting emotional g lad, fantastic to have you on the show. Yes, come back soon and talk to us, please. The founder and CEO of MyHeritage. I invite heritage. everyone to come to my
8: heritage and try it for free for themselves. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Well, there you go. You've teased it rather than me and you've stopped me crying. Thank you, sir. Great to have you on. All right, coming up, get a vaccine, get more freedoms. New changes for Israel's Green Pass holders. Next, stay with us. Israel easing more COVID restrictions with its vaccination program moving at lightning speed. The country now issues so-called green passes, giving vaccinated citizens more freedoms. Sam Kiley joins us live from Jerusalem. Really trailblazing on the vaccination program, Sam, and now on Passports too.
9: Yeah, uh, Julia, it's been uh, an exciting few days since Sunday, really, when the Israelis and, of course, the Palestinians, uh, whom the Israelis are responsible for, according to UN experts, and the Palestinian Authority have been excluded from this, apart from 100,000-odd workers uh, who are being inoculated. But aside from that, inside Israel itself, Israeli citizens now pass the 5 million mark, the number of people who've had one uh, shot, and 40% of the population that they had two, and that 40%, can use their new green passes uh, from Sunday onwards to get into bars, restaurants, even make hotel bookings. And this is what it looked like when it was starting to roll out on Sunday. An hour before reopening, Israeli celebrity chef Asaf Granit is on site for the renaissance of the kitchen at the center of his restaurant empire.
3: It's like a rebreath, yeah, exactly. It's like opening all over again. Let's see, it's gonna, I think, lunch will be slowly picking up and then dinner we're already booked so it's going to be a long and happy day.
9: It's not surprising really that there's a party atmosphere here in Machna Yehuda. It's perhaps the most famous restaurant in the city, famous for its high energy music, high energy food, high energy chef, but also it's going to be working at 75 percent capacity. Patrons have to be six feet two meters apart. That's going to be policed and vigilated by an extra member of staff and this is all going to be a result of the introduction of the Israeli green passports, the vaccination certificates that mean that slowly, at least, this economy can start to recover. Thank you. First in line, 30 minutes ahead of their booking, a couple from Tel Aviv, proud of their vaccine passes.
1: We have it on the phone, but here you can see it. Please. Wonderful.
9: Why are you so excited? Because it's a new after a year. of Israelis have had both vaccine shots and can now enjoy new freedoms to attend concerts, hotels, restaurants, bars, even universities, with some limits on total numbers. But the fears of another lockdown loom over even the most optimistic. Renewed restrictions would be ruinous. About 5 million Israelis have had a first dose of the vaccine, a world-leading level of take-up, even though ultra-Orthodox Jews and Israeli Arabs are lagging behind. It's an achievement that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party will trumpet in the couple of weeks remaining before elections here. How does it feel to be opening? Uh, a little scary and very exciting. <laughs> Why is it scary? Um, first of all, opening up, just seeing customers again, it's been a year. He's screening customers for vaccine certificates. And what if people don't have it? Then they can sit outside. Not a bad option. After all, spring is in the air. Now, Julia, uh, this has been very good news indeed for Israel. They are hoping that by the end of next month, they'll have reached something approaching herd immunity. They're not inoculating children under 16 years of age. But they are beginning to inch forward to opening up their airspace and trying to get the economy going again. And I'm very grateful I've got my green passport now, too. Let's hope I can use it somewhere else in the world. Julia?
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's like a parallel universe, quite frankly. And I understand that sort of combination of excitement <laughs> and fear, too. But nice to see your, your passport there. And fingers crossed you do get to use it as well, Sam. And we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for that report there. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages, as always. Search for at Chatterley CNN. And that's it from me. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll see you tomorrow.